Lord's return. I think we're going to spend a significant amount of time together in this subject as a church family, at least in the teaching life of our church, beginning here and and going on for some time. There's a lot that we're going to be talking about that's related to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, his second coming. When he comes back to the earth to rule over the earth, where he conquers all opposition and ultimately hands everything over to the Father for all eternity. That is what we're going to talk about, the return of Christ. You can readily see that in our passage from verse 15. It mentions the coming of the Lord. Even verses 16 and 17, as were just read to you, describes a chronology of events connected to the return of the Lord. When we get to chapter 5, the first 11 verses are a discussion of the Lord's return by focusing on a particular portion of that period of his return known as the day of the Lord. And it's a means of providing essential encouragement to fearful Christians. Now, Lord willing, we're going to keep going after the first of the year into 2 Thessalonians. And when you get to 2 Thessalonians, you're right in the first chapter from verse 5 down to verse 12 or verse 10, actually. It describes events that are related to the return of the Lord when he comes in vengeance over those who've been persecuting his people. In 2 Thessalonians 2, the first 12 verses of that chapter, it goes into further detail about the day of the Lord and relates to that gathering of Christians before him as well, also that Christians would be thankful in God and for his eternal preservation. So there's a lot of conversation that we're about to have about the return of the Lord. We've actually already encountered some of this in our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. He mentions that this was a church, if you remember back in chapter 1 verse 10, when they understood the gospel, this was a church of people who were waiting for his son to come from heaven. He is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. At the end of chapter 2, we were again pointed toward the coming of the Lord when Paul said in verse 19, who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus? When? At his coming. There's going to be some time in which the saints are confirmed at the coming of the Lord. Also, you see it again in the end of chapter three. He's praying for these Thessalonians that that God might encourage your hearts to be without blame in holiness before our God and Father, when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. There's a period in which the saints are even presented to the Father in Christ and confirmed as holy. So there's a lot in this letter, there's a lot in the letter to come in 2 Thessalonians, and if we were really paying attention, we would find that there's a whole lot of detail throughout all of the New Testament, and even the Old Testament, about the coming of Christ. Now I understand, for some, the study of eschatology, or that is the study of last things, is an obsession. For others... Eschatology is merely confusion, and I understand that. For too many, eschatology is simply ignored for a variety of reasons. 
Either we can't make sense of all of the information or perhaps we're frustrated with all of the debates and we look at that and we say, you know what, there's good people on on every side of these debates. There's good, solid believers who think differently about that, so I really just don't care. Maybe we have been settled in our conviction and we find ourselves on a different page than other people and, and so we just kind of ignore any further study. And for many, the details of Christ's return are so debated that we just want to focus on the pan-millennial view, right? It all pans out in the end, and that's just kind of where we end up. But I want you to notice that for the Apostle Paul, the details actually are very important. And they're important for very practical reasons. The details are tied to your stability in the faith. These details of the Lord's return are actually tied to your own encouragement as a Christian. As you are interpreting all the things that are going on around you, you will see them in light of what you actually believe in regard to the details of the Lord's return. In fact, I think you could say that about every passage that talks about the return of Jesus Every passage that has anything to do with Christ's return has as its aim some practical aid to our stability in the here and now in light of what the future will bring. So knowing what happens in the future is actually the key to your stability in the present. And sometimes we don't think about that too much. Yes, I, I, I understand All who are Orthodox Christians believe that Jesus will return physically to the earth. If you do not believe that, that is a sign of heresy. So we all believe he's coming. Now, as to the timing of those events and the order of those events, the chronology of it all and how it's all going to work out, there is some debate, correct? No small amount of debate. As I was just pulling books off the shelf and stacking them up, thinking, woe is me, how do I get all this read before Sunday? I thought, let me, let me just stretch out this teaching time so I can uh, get through all these books. And uh, so we'll, we'll cover a little bit today, because I still have some reading to do. No, it's, I, I mean, I do, I still want to read more, and, and I never can finish studying this topic, there's so much out there. But I think we're going to have a thrilling time in it. But, but I want you to see that this is not just about winning an argument. This is not just being on the right side of the debate. There are really some practical concerns here that we need to have in our heart and mind because they affect our stability in the here and now. I mean, think about what we've learned already in this letter. If you remember back in chapter 1 and verse 3, it was a virtual outline of, of the letter. When Paul is praying for these people and he says, I'm constantly bearing in mind three things. You remember what they were? I'm bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and what was the third one? Steadfastness, stability of hope. Now, we've looked at this. The first three chapters really emphasized what the work of faith looked like. When we got to chapter 4, we began to dive into this idea of the labor of love. What does it mean to actually love one another? Now we come to the section that actually unfolds discussion about our hope. Because the word hope, when used in the New Testament, many times is connected to the idea of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he actually associates here with the word hope tied to Christ's return, the idea of our stability, our steadfastness. You keep your feet firmly planted when you know what's coming at you. When you know what to expect, you're ready to embrace it, to respond to it. That's the idea behind hope. That's the idea behind why we need to spend some time detailing the events of the Lord's return because it prepares you. It helps you to interpret what is and is not going on around you right now. So you respond with stability and hope and encouragement. Paul even refers to hope in our passage. In verse 13, He refers to those who are grieving as the rest who do not have hope. Meaning your sorrow, particularly in connection to the passing of people you know and love, your sorrow over that does not need to look like the non-Christian world who does not have any future hope which should be telling to us, striking to us. Our understanding of the Lord's return has a lot to do with our present stability. So this morning we begin to look into a number of the details related to Christ's return so that we might grow in our hope. We looked at the first two verses of chapter four some time ago where we learned what Christian growth was all about. Then more recently in verses 3 to 8, 3 through 8, we, we looked at how we're to grow in our purity. We looked at verses 9 to 12 last Lord's Day of how we're to grow in love. And now verses 13 to 18, we're to grow in hope. I have a lot to talk about here about growing in the Christian faith. We all know that purity is essential to our Christian growth. We know that love is, is fundamental. I'm not so sure that modern Christians today think that our understanding of the end times are all that essential for our growth in stability and hope. But that's precisely what the apostle emphasizes for us here. And I do recognize that people in this room let alone people across the Christian landscape, have so many perspectives on the details and the timing of those details in relation to the coming of Christ that our study of this, I'm under no illusion, is likely not going to satisfy everyone. So I know that from the get-go. As you're dissatisfied, just know, he told us I would be. But hopefully this will help us at least to get our hands around enough of the Bible that we would say, my hope needs to look different and it needs to be rooted in something very firmly in the word of God. So our aim through this study and and really the next number of months as we consider these passages to come up in our study is really to to focus on what is in front of us. I'm not going to be able to to teach everything and every detail that we find in the Bible. Uh, You would not want me to even try that on Sunday. Some of you think I do that every Sunday, but I, I promise you there's a lot more that I'm leaving out. So we're not gonna be able to go through absolutely everything, but we do want to look at what is in front of us and then we'll try to piece it together with other things that we see in the Bible so we see it in the right perspective. But all of that to say this too, wherever you end up, on these details related to Christ's return. 
the obvious expectation is that whatever you believe about this, it should grow your hope in the coming of Christ. It should grow your hope. It should inspire hope, not dread. It should inspire stability, not anxiety. And if your study of the return of Jesus or your ignoring of eschatology altogether produces anything other than stability in relationship to what's going on around you, then you're either not understanding these things accurately at best, or at worst, you're misusing those details. And we don't want that. You should be a stronger, more stable Christian the more you understand about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. An understanding of his return should grow a Christian's hope. So how's it going to do that? That's the question that Paul answers for us here. We know we have grieving Christians and he even tells us at the end of verse of this passage in verse 18, therefore comfort one another. So how does an understanding of the return of Jesus Christ help us grow in our hope? Well, we're going to unpack this morning and, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, five different ways that understanding Christ's return will grow a Christian's hope. So five different ways that understanding Christ's return will grow a Christian's hope. And we're going to slowly work our way through these so that we can try to get our hands around them and our hearts as well. Yeah, I think you're going to find this very relevant for us in this season of life and, and in the season of life that you're going to experience, that everybody's going to experience to one degree or another before the Lord returns. I want you to grow in hope. I think the Lord himself expects that you will grow in your hope, and that is your confident expectation that the Lord will return. And, and hope is just that. Hope is a settled confidence. You understand that, don't you? This is not... This is not the kind of hope that I have that the Cowboys could win today because it's not a confident expectation. It's a hope that has no doubts. It's a hope that is absolutely assured. And I want your hope to be rock solid because there's a lot coming at us right now. I think there's a lot on the horizon to come at us. You have no idea, I have no idea what's coming this week that could reshape your life, that could shake you. We have no idea what news you could hear this week that could rattle you. And so when it comes, not if, when it comes, I want your mind to run to Christ's return. Because then you'll stand fast. You won't move. You'll be ready. So what are these five ways that understanding Christ's return will grow our hope? First, Christ's return brings clarity. No, really. It brings clarity. Some of you are like, I don't know about that. The return of Jesus, there's so much, so many views. There's not a lot of clarity on that. In fact, there's so so little clarity on all of this that I'm not sure that I even want to have this discussion. I might skip church over the next few weeks or months or go somewhere else where they're talking about practical things, not ethereal things like this. Oh no, the return of Christ actually brings clarity so that you have hope. 
I know that's not the first word that comes to mind, and I, I know there's a lot of good people with different views on this. I know there's problematic issues with every potential view, whether we, we, and we'll talk about some of these in the future, whether you're an amillennialist, premillennialist, postmillennialist, panmillennialist, all of that, whether you're pre-tribulational, post-tribulational, mid-tribulational, pre-wrath, etc. I know there's a lot of views and a lot of great people who we're going to be in heaven with, who hold these different views. And, and as I read them, I'm, I'm like, you know, somebody's wrong on this, <laughs> Right? Someone's right, someone's wrong. And, and one day we're going to stand around with the Lord and, and just kind of chuckle with each other, I'm sure, and say, that was, that was kind of fun, wasn't it? Then we're going to all understand it. But with all of that, I don't want you to think that it, it, it means that none of this is important. The variety of views that are out there doesn't mean that there's not an accurate view. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about these details, now, we don't need to be divisive with one another about them. And in our church, as you understand, and you know if you've been here, there's no position that you have to affirm to be a member of our church. No one position other than that Jesus is coming back physically to the earth. That's orthodoxy. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a right view to this. And, and it is the, the role of Bible study to try to come down on, on how, do we, how do we follow the breadcrumbs to the right conclusion? How do we piece it all together? How do we try to at least get our arms around it? And I, I think that's what many are, are doing in good faith of trying to understand these details. But I do want you to see that that Paul here in this passage, right off the bat, is trying to address a lack of clarity in the minds of the Thessalonians about these issues. That's why he begins in verse 13, we do not want you to be what? Uninformed. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. That is an interesting word. Agnoeo, it is the negative form of the word gnosko. If you're a, a study, a student of the, the Greek New Testament, some of you have just been around church enough, you've heard that word gnosko. It's the word to know. And it means to have a, a deep and experiential knowledge of something, not just head knowledge, it means a personal knowledge. And so Paul is saying here, this is the negative of, the, of that word, I, I don't want you to be ignorant, personally ignorant. I want you to have a comprehensive grasp, as much as you can grasp this. I want you to personally grasp it. I don't want to leave you in the lurch. Paul regularly throughout his letters, a number of times, is addressing the lack of information or the misinformation or the misapplication of information among Christians who are taking things that are being taught to them, perhaps moving them, shaping them, reworking them, redefining them, and it leads to a bad application. For example, in Romans 1.13, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware same phrase, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I plan to come to you. You think that my absence means I don't love you? No, I'm often coming. I don't want you to interpret it wrong because then you don't hear me correctly. Misinformation leads to bad application. Romans eleven twenty five. after he's discussed the salvation of Israel in the end and the coming of the Lord, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come and I don't want you to be uninformed about these issues regarding Israel and the fullness of the Gentiles. 
1 Corinthians 10.1, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. In the Old Testament, there were issues going on that are paralleling you today. I don't want you to be unaware about that because it leads to bad application. So about what are they confused? About what are these Christians in Thessalonica uninformed? What does the text say in verse 13? About those who are asleep. About those who are asleep. This is about those who have died. So whatever we're dealing with here in regard to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the particular problem in the church in Thessalonica had to do with how they are responding to people likely in their church who have died. Not just loved ones, not just family members, but again, as we've said before, this church was going through so much persecution during this time that it's likely that they would show up to church one Sunday and there are people, there are people who were there the previous week who aren't there this week. Why? Because they lost their life. Now that would be stark, wouldn't it? If we showed up here every week and someone in our midst was missing because they lost their life because of their loyalty to Jesus Christ, our worship would be a little different. We would feel that every week. And I promise you, we would be thinking about the Lord's return more. So they are. They're concerned. They're having a problem. They're misinformed about those who sleep. So Paul doesn't want them to be unaware because if you have the wrong information about those who have died, you misapply this issue as you're walking through it. You wrongly apply the information you have. The word for asleep, koimao, it's used nine times by the Apostle Paul to refer to Christians who have died, three times in this chapter alone, three times in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is all about the resurrection of the dead. It's a typical word, actually, to describe those who have died. And he actually refers to death specifically with the normal term for death, necros, that's used in verse 16, the dead in Christ. So this term for asleep is just a, it's a way to talk about those who have died. And in the ancient world, in the world that Paul lived in, it was, it was not a term used only by Christians. Some have suggested that. But the, the non-Christian world used this to speak of those who had died as well. And you can understand why. When someone has died physically and you see their, their body, their lifeless body there, it looks as if they are asleep. It's a normal way to speak of death. It's a less harsh way to talk about death. And we, we typically do the same thing when we talk about someone who has passed away. That's the less harsh way to talk about someone who has died. And it's a picturesque way. And, and for Christians, it's loaded with meaning, isn't it? It's loaded with expectation, Because we look at the the death of a Christian, we look at the physical death of a Christian as simply anticipation of what is to come. It's an image filled with such hope. The, The believer's body sleeps awaiting that a resurrection to be fully and eternally awake and alive with Christ. Now just a just a footnote here. 
There are some, like Seventh-day Adventists or Jehovah's Witnesses and a few, there are some few Protestant evangelicals that suggest that this idea of a sleep doesn't just refer to the body, but it refers to the body and the soul, something they refer to as soul sleep. Perhaps you've heard that idea. It means that when a Christian dies, there is no spiritual consciousness that continues until the resurrection when the body, and they would say then the soul also is awakened to be with the Lord. And so until that time, body and soul sleep. Now, I I don't think that that's a biblical idea. It's not really the way the Bible talks about a believer when they die. For example, if you want to jot some of this down just so that you you have this in in your mind, because these are passages that we refer to many, many times when we are faced with family members or friends who are in the Lord who die. There's some examples that we have of what happens to a believer, especially spiritually, and their soul when they die, such as 2 Corinthians 5. Just jot that down. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 and 7. Really, you could go through verse 8 also. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Paul says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are, listen to this language, while we are at home in the body, we're present in the body, physically alive, that means we are then absent from the Lord. Now you understand that terminology, don't you? While we're alive right now, we are actually absent from the physical presence of the Lord. And he goes on to say, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be what? Home with the Lord or present with the Lord. What does he mean by that? We understand right now physically in this physical body we have, we are apart from the Lord physically. But our preference is to be absent from this body and to be in the presence of the Lord at home as it were. We were just singing about that, weren't we? At home with the Lord. There's a sense in which Paul says, if the body dies, I then will be present with or at home with the Lord. Even more, in Philippians 1, 21, Paul is is telling the Philippian church, he's in prison and he doesn't know what awaits him. He could die or he could continue. His outlook on it is this. For to me, Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ. To die is what? You know this one? It's gain. What? Death is gain? How could death be gain if the soul sleeps? Well, that's not how Paul envisions it. Listen to him. Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, I keep on in this physical life, this will mean fruitful labor for me, And I do not know which to choose. I am hard pressed from both directions. What directions, Paul? What's so hard for you? Having the desire, listen to this, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is much better. And all God's people said, 
right? I mean, we know that. Our desire, if you had the desire, you know, if you had the opportunity to be out of this sinful body, this body that is weighed down with all of the implications and consequences of sin, this aging, dying body, and be in the presence of the Lord, you would say, please, yes, that is much better. And it is. He says, yet to remain on in the flesh, that is to be physically with you, is more profitable for you right now. So for Paul, he thinks if his physical life ends, he is in the presence of the Lord, which is so much better. Even though there's value for our living our life for the glory of God with each other right now, physically. Just another illustration that reminds us that those who die, their spirit is in the immediate presence of the Lord. Think about Stephen in the book of Acts as he was being stoned. In Acts chapter 7, verse 59, the text says, They went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord. And listen to what Stephen said as he called on the Lord as he's dying, physically dying. Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, the text says he fell asleep. Using the same terminology here. So to fall asleep is to see your spirit received by the Lord. So other places throughout the Bible, when it talks about the believer dying physically, There is a sense in which the believer has a conscious expectation that he will have communion and fellowship and be in the presence of the Lord, even though his body is physically dead. We're awaiting that time when the body awakes and is rejoined and we're complete and whole and we live eternally on the earth with Christ soul and body. Now in a few moments we'll talk about the likely situation that's going on in the, among the Thessalonians that has sparked the need for this instruction about those who are asleep. But for a moment I, I just want you to think about the impact that death tends to have on all of us. What is sparking this issue among the Thessalonians are people they know personally who are dying. And I just want to stop and make sure that we, we all take this in for a moment because there is nothing that we experience in this life, in this world, that is quite like experiencing the death of people we know personally. There's a unique pain to it. It is a very unique sting Isn't that how Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death? Now, those of you who have had someone close to you, someone you knew well, whether family or a very close friend, you've seen them pass away, you feel the sting. You feel it. In different ways, but you you feel it. There is a loss of companionship. There's a physical finality to it. And something about looking at a corpse feels wrong. It feels empty, too final. And I don't know that there's anything 
that we experience that is quite like that. Now, if you're someone who you've never really encountered the death of someone very close to you, the sting, may, you may not understand what that means and what that feels like. But you will. You will. It's coming. The older you get, and you really have no idea when it's going to happen, you're going to experience the death of someone very close to you. And you're going to know it's sting. You know, it's one thing to be really interested in the historical place we're in where a queen dies after reigning on a throne for 70 years and we're all interested in the funeral and all the details around it. That's kind of historical, but my guess is no one in here really knew her. You raise your hand because we'd like to talk with you. There's information we'd lo- really love to know. Anybody? No, you didn't know, but, but we're all reading the reports and we're all interested in that. But, but that kind of absence in death is not what we're talking about. When someone you know dies, it's life-altering. It's deep. It's personal. It's a sting of death. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin. When Adam and Eve were told when they were first given the abundance and perfection of the Garden of Eden that they could eat of everything in the garden, including the the fruit of the tree of life, meaning they could live on and on and on and never know death. But that day that they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where they would seek independence from God, what was the pronouncement? You will surely die. And they did. You say, well, they didn't die immediately. Well, that's the mercy of God. That's the ordination, the plan of God for how human history would move on. But read Genesis 5. Adam died. And so did every successive generation after him. Why? Because they were cast out of the garden, no more access to the tree of life. They could not live on. And the principle of death that was introduced into the creation because of their sin and impacted everything in the created world, including disease, impacted them and their bodies began to decay. And over time, they did die. And it has been... The record of human history, we all die. The reality is that we could show up here next week and it could be in God's ordained plan that some of us may not be here. Or some of you this week may experience the death of someone that you know. It has a very unique impact on us. So much so... uh, There's an entire industry of grief counseling out there and and an entire science of how to deal with grief because it is so impactful. There are some people who, when they encounter death, never seem to fully recover from its impact on the way they live. They cannot live their life anymore like they used to because of the death of someone close to them. Maybe you've experienced that, and maybe you know that, and maybe you know people who are walking through that or have walked through that. Because there's nothing quite like it. I think these 
people in Thessalonica were experiencing something like that. But here's the, here's the thing. What you think about death in relationship to God, what you think about death in relationship to the coming of Christ will govern the way you live in light of death. And if you have a clear understanding about the coming of the Lord, it puts death into proper perspective. We don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed. Because if you have the wrong idea about death and life and your response, and you're not thinking of it in light of the ultimate realities of the coming of Christ, you won't respond in the application of truth correctly. In fact, I'll go so far to say, you'll never get over it. And I mean by that, you won't be able to live stably. I know it's common to visit the gravesite of a loved one who has passed away. Why? You ever thought about that? Why? I mean, that's the place where their remains are and some will even go to the gravesite and they begin to speak to the person as if they could hear or as if they were present. And there's even the unbelieving world and I find some Christians think this as well is that the departed, their spirit is somehow walking beside them or can hear them or is actually aware of what's going on, which the Bible does not tell us. It's, it's a wrong approach to thinking about death, not putting it into perspective that would would cause you then to start living with almost a despair or a a sense where you, you hope that there's some communion you could continue to have. I mean, some will go so far as to try to have a Ouija board and commune with the dead. There are certain responses to death that show us and show you what you believe about eternity. I mean, what, what actually happens? How do you think about the passing of a friend, a loved one? Where are they now? That affects your heart, doesn't it? <laughs> Maybe more than anything else. What are they doing? Do they know what we're doing? Are they spiritually present? Can they hear us? What, what decisions am I making now that would disappoint them? This is the kind of conversation that, that goes on in your mind. How much of that's actually governed by a biblical understanding of what happens at death? So if in your mind there is no life after death, then the answer to these kinds of questions don't fill the hole in your heart over the loss. In fact, it may cause fear, despair, sadness. The finality, the inability to reverse the loss may leave a scar that is so deep emotionally or empty that you try to fill it and you can't because it's just full of an untouchable sadness. Or some people, you watch them, they, they fill the hole with denial. They develop bad habits that ignore the reality of it. They replace it with other bad habits, with overwork, preoccupation with something else. There's just a number of responses to the death of someone we know. Some just look at it as animalistic. It's over. They're gone. We move on. We treat it like 
a flower that died. Those aren't actually answers, are they? They're coping mechanisms. There's no answer. There's no finality to that. Which is what happens when you allow ignorance about the future to linger in your mind about those who have died. Because an improper understanding leads to an improper application, even in regard to things about the second coming of Christ that impact how you view those who have died. It is assuredly the case that if you can't live faithfully and confidently and clearly beyond the loss of a departed loved one, that is a response that is likely related to a misapplication of biblical truth or a lack of understanding the truth or a misunderstanding about the truth. As I mentioned at the beginning of this message, this section of the book about those who have died is really about the second coming of Jesus because it puts those who are asleep in connection with Jesus bringing them with him, verse 14. And verse 15, when he comes, when he descends, verse 16. Resurrection of the dead. This is all about the coming of Christ and how that should impact the way we respond to death. We have more to say about the parousia, that's the Greek term for coming, and we will. But this is not a reference to something that happened within the first century. The coming of the Lord is not a reference, as some would suggest, to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's not the issue that Paul is trying to address here. He's addressing what happens when Jesus comes in finality. In fact, all of the references to this term of the coming of Jesus refer to his coming in fullness. None of them refer to something that happened historically in 70 AD or any time within the first century. And the coming of Jesus is not just coming in judgment. It's not just coming in judgment. He's coming in vindication. He's coming in victory. He's coming in restoration. So it's not just judgment. And if you were to read every passage about his coming incorrectly, do you know what you set up in your heart? The platform for no hope. Because how do you know what is to come? How do you know what to expect if what you have done is interpreted every passage in relation to his coming incorrectly? How then could you actually know enough to have any hope? Our understanding of the return of Christ should bring clarity, not confusion, not ignorance, and a kind of clarity that brings hope. So hopefully, as we walk through this, we find clarity in the second coming of Jesus so that we have stable hope. Brings us to a second understanding of Christ's return that should grow our hope. We, we don't just want clarity from it, and it doesn't just bring clarity, but secondly, Christ's return dispels grief. It dispels grief. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. And what's his aim here? So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. 
In the case that we find here in 1 Thessalonians 4, these Christians are grieving over church members, maybe family members, who've died. And Paul doesn't want them to be misunderstanding what's going on in relation to them so that they would not grieve like people who don't have hope. Grief is perhaps one of the most intense emotions there are. You might remember what we have said many times about feelings, and grief is such a feeling. Where do feelings come from? They come from how you think. They come from how you think. Thinking leads to how you feel. And if you're feeling hopeless grief, that comes from a kind of thinking that breeds hopeless. Hopelessness. So what do you need to do to your thinking? You need to change it by what you know to be true. And that's how we talk a lot of times. If you're feeling a certain way, it's because you're thinking a certain way, so you need to replace that thinking with what you know to be true. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. There's misinformation, things you don't understand. It's causing grief, so you have to change what you think here by what you know to be true. So let's begin there. If you understand the details of Christ's return, then your mind begins to connect that truth about the future to the present loss, and it then begins to govern how you feel. The details about the return of Christ should have a very practical and a most personal application to the most daunting enemy you and I have, and that is death. You govern loss with the knowledge of Christ's return so that your feelings don't look like the feelings of those who have no hope. You might be thinking, are you saying that we should not have any sorrow at all? Well, Paul does say here, I'm saying this so you're not uninformed and I don't want you to be informed so you will not grieve. Grief should not be the definition of a Christian's life. Even in the face of loss, grief must not define us. That's easy to say this morning behind this pulpit with present experiences. And maybe that's when we need to hear it, is before it comes. Yes, I understand that sorrow in and of itself may not necessarily be sinful. There are some expressions of sorrow that can be sinful and indeed are because they are hopeless. They do not have faith in Jesus. Yes, Jesus wept. When he heard that his friend Lazarus died and he was seeing the responses of people to the death of Lazarus, he wept. There was sorrow. I think he wailed when he looked at the unbelief of Jerusalem in Matthew 23. He grieved in the garden. The word for grief that's used here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is used of Jesus when he was in the garden. He actually grieved in the garden, but resolved his grief with what? Nevertheless, your will be done. It inspired confidence and hope. Jesus indicated that when he died, his disciples would then grieve and they would weep and they would lament as the world would rejoice over his death in John 16, 20. 
Peter suggests that there is a present kind of grief that happens in our hearts over severe trials of suffering, 1 Peter 1.6. I get that. There is a normal, natural human grief. But remember, it is sin that causes hopeless grief. The sting of death. The sting that penetrates the heart and the soul. The sting of death is sin. So there is a non-sinful kind of sorrow that is inherent in the loss of a loved one. And we're reminded that that very sorrow that we have is a result of sin. I think that should make us hate sin all the more. It should make us long for the coming of Jesus. What, what were you thinking when we were singing a moment ago? When we sang, we'll be home, what did that mean to you? But the grief of any Christian, the sorrow of any believer over anything should not be like the grief of those who have no hope. The typical secular response to death, you can read it, it's easy to look up online and you can see it and too many Christians use it. They say, ah, the the typical response to death is you're going to go through these stages and there's seven or eight or nine depending on the theorists behind them. And you can chronicle them. And chronicling these stages of grief seem appropriate and they seem normal and they seem like because it's observation of what normal people go through. Should you actually be angry? Should you actually experience anxiety and despair? Because when I look at those terms, I think those are not the terms that should define Christians who are actually following what they say they believe. I'm not saying we don't struggle with those things. But when the stages of secular sorrow define us, we begin to look like those who have no hope, which means then that we are likely not applying truth to how we're seeing and responding to death. Will there be sorrow? More than likely there will be. How do you govern it? Paul suggests here that a Christian response does not need to look like the stages of secular grief. There should be a difference. What is the difference? In your grief over your loss than the grief that others experience over loss. It may be necessary for you to maybe sit down with someone and open a Bible and unpack that. And have your heart ready to be instructed on how to respond and think through it. So what was it that was going on here that would cause some Christians to be tempted to think in such a way that their grief was looking like the unbelieving grief of the hopeless? Well, Paul gives us some detail here. He doesn't give us everything that we could want here. And I'm going to try to give you a little bit of what I think is a reconstruction of what's going on in this passage and in 2 Thessalonians so that we, we get our mind around what, what's causing this kind of grief. We have a number of clues that might help us to know why they're grieving or potentially grieving the way they are. It's found even in the very first word of verse 13. You see that word? It's the word but. 
well, why would that give us any clue? Well, if you remember last week when we were talking about those who are idle, those who are lazy, I said that that laziness could be connected to a false understanding about the issues related to Christ's return. That perhaps they thought that they were in the day of the Lord and so they said, we don't need to work anymore. And they were lazy and they were expecting others to meet their needs and they were not responding appropriately. And the word but here may be a connection back to that prior discussion. Similarly, when you talk about the day of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, on the heels of that, when you get into chapter 3, is another discussion about those who are living in a lazy way, likely and possibly because of their false views of the return of Christ. So it could be that someone has misinformed them about what's coming in the future and it's causing them to live in an unbiblical way that's not loving others and it's causing some to grieve over the passing of loved ones. Furthermore, chapter 5, verse 1 The very first word of that passage is the same word, but, or it's translated in the New American Standard as now. It's the word but, now as to the times and the epochs, he changes the subject just a bit, but he's still talking about the second coming. So he's relating what's happening here about the second coming to what he's just described in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Now, I, I think chapters four, chapter 4, 13 to 18 is about the catching away of believers because he says that in verse 17. We who are alive and remain will be caught up, snatched away, together with them, that is, those who've been resurrected, the believers who've been resurrected, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and will always be with the Lord. So we should comfort one another with those words. But let me also give you instruction, chapter 5, on the day of the Lord, because chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 are all about the day of the Lord, which is another element related to the coming of Christ that's distinct from this idea of them being snatched away. It's another element of the coming of the Lord, another phase of it, you could say, and he wants to give instructions so that they comfort one another. You can see it in verse 11. What's the result of understanding the day of the Lord? Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you're doing. So they must be discouraged about something tied to the day of the Lord. Now, what is the day of the Lord? Again, I'm just setting the scene. There's more to be said about this that we'll unpack. But turn over to 2 Thessalonians for a moment. Chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2. Look at verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard, watch this, to the coming of the Lord, the parousia of the Lord. It's a general term that means the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, what's the next phrase? Our gathering together to him. That likely is a reference to what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, the passage that we're studying, about the snatching away of believers. Our gathering to him in the air to be with the Lord. So in regard to the coming of the Lord and our gathering to him, verse 2 says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So what do you think is going on? So when I'm talking to you about the snatching away of believers in regard to the coming of the Lord, don't be deceived. If you got a letter 
or someone stood, stood up in your church and said, I have a message from God, and there's a spirit that says, this is from the Lord, that the day of the Lord has come. Don't be disturbed by that. You say, well, what, what does that mean? Well, they're obviously misinterpreting their circumstances. They're going through intense persecution as believers. And someone has misrepresented the Apostle Paul's teaching and they're giving some kind of information and instruction as if they were even the Apostle Paul, as if the day of the Lord has come. Now, we'll unpack this later, but the day of the Lord is what the prophet spoke of in the Old Testament. And it has to do with the coming of the Lord in final vengeance and wrath and victory and restoration and ultimate establishment of his kingdom. The day of the Lord is not one single day. It is a multiplicity of different events that culminate the coming, the appearing of the Lord Jesus to the earth. So if you interpret your current trials and circumstances and tribulation as if if this were the day of the Lord, then what happened to our friends and our church members and our beloved ones who've died? And they're starting to grieve as if there's no hope for them. Then what have they missed? They have missed the gathering. You say, well, why would you say that? Because he's talking about the gathering in relationship to the day of the Lord. And someone said the day of the Lord is here. So what does that mean about the gathering? Now, I would take it this way. If the Apostle Paul had originally taught the Thessalonians that the next event on the timeline of the return of Christ was a great period of suffering and trial that culminates in the return, the victorious return of Christ, then there would be no reason to grieve over departed loved ones. In fact, there would be reason to rejoice that they were not going through that, correct? Now, if he had taught that there was a gathering of believers to be with the Lord, followed by the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is the pouring out of the wrath of God on the nations of the earth, that it would eventually culminate in the coming back of the Lord with his saints, that he refers to in 3.13, to establish his kingdom, then you might think if the day of the Lord is here, then guess who's not coming back with the Lord? It's our departed loved ones who have not been resurrected. And so Paul is saying, you don't need to worry about that. I think he's implying here the I taught you the gathering would happen, then the day of the Lord would occur, and at the culmination of the day of the Lord, he will bring back those who are his. And your loved ones are a part of that. And you say, well, how do you know he's saying that? Because in verse 14, 15, 16, 17 of chapter 4, he explains why they should not grieve. Because the snatching away of believers would come, they would be resurrected They would be brought to the Lord in the air. And then in chapter five, he goes on to describe the day of the Lord that would follow. Seems to be the trajectory. All of that to say, you can see, if you miss the details of the Lord's return, it impacts the way you respond to your circumstances. How you respond in grief. If your thinking is not clear and you don't understand how this is unfolding, you think wrongly, and you begin to respond 
incorrectly. Because grief over departed loved ones need to be governed by the expectation that the next item on the timeline of God is their actual resurrection to be with the Lord in the air and be with him forever. That way there's no hopelessness in death. There's no hopelessness. As, as that loved one is buried, as that friend is buried in the ground, you stand at a graveside and you say, come Lord Jesus, the next item is they're going to be resurrected from the dead. They're going to be caught up with the Lord into the air. We are going to be with them if we remain at the coming of the Lord and we'll be with the Lord. There's no grief there if we think that way. But if Paul was wrong and they're not resurrected, they're going to miss all of that. More we're going to say and unpack on that. I won't say any more on that. That'll generate enough email this week. But suffice it to say, I, I want you to get your mind around this and just see how Paul is trying to shepherd this church. The second coming is about shepherding. The second coming is about how to respond in light of what you believe about Christ's return. In other words... I know this is true for all of us. We don't think about his return enough. You cannot think about his return enough. I I don't mean you need to be obsessing and argumentation over, over this with Christians to the part you're dividing with them over it. We don't dwell on it in relationship to our own heart's affections enough. Do we actually do it like the Apostle John does through the book of Revelation to where he erupts at the end of the book and shouts, come, Lord Jesus. Are you begging for him to come? Are you praying for the coming of his kingdom in its fullness as Jesus told us to do? And what do you mean when you pray for that? It has great impact. So Christ's return should bring some clarity to our circumstances. It should. And it should dispel our grief. We should never grieve like the lost world grieves in the face of death because of what we understand about the coming of the Lord. Our hope is that the next thing that happens for us is we are caught up in his presence to be with him forever. No matter what's going on, the next thing on the timeline for us and our expectation. If we are alive, if we die, we are going to be caught up in resurrection with the Lord in the air. And if you have any other thought about what has happened to the departed grieving ones, take at least that and govern your heart's affections with it. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we think through these things together, as we walk through them, that you will give us heart affections that are rooted in the glory of Christ and in his supremacy over all things. And we expect the Lord, we expect the Lord Jesus to come, that you, Father, will send him in the right timing, at the right place, the right moment, and that our heart lives in expectation of that. That our holiness and our conduct is governed by our expectation that he could come and that we could be caught away to be with him in his presence. 
And as Paul said, that is so much better. We long for that. Whether through death or rather through you calling us up to be with you, we long to be in your presence. We long for the day that those that we've lost to death enjoy eternal life physically with all of us together in glory in your presence. Lord, I pray that you would govern our hearts with this truth and you'll help us so that we don't grieve like the lost. So that when the lost see us and they see, why, why are you confident in your sorrow? We have a ready testimony. As you have raised the Lord Jesus, we have every confidence that you will bring with you those who have died in Christ. Give us that hope. Give us that stability. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.